Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at Southwood, and I want to welcome you to Grace. If you're new here, you've joined us for about a month into our year-long study of the book of Romans. Romans is a letter that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul, and sent to an early church, or actually a, a number of early churches, house churches, in the city of Rome. And so as Paul was writing to this church, inspired by the Spirit, to write them this letter, He's writing to people he's never met. He's writing to churches that he actually had never visited. And so as he's writing to them, he doesn't know a lot about them personally, but what he does know is that they are in an influential, pivotal place in the culture, in the nation at that time, right? They're in, Rome, they're in the capital of the largest empire at that time. And so when Paul's writing to them, he knows that these are influential people that are going to have opportunity to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, this gospel message, right? Literally, gospel, good news of Jesus. And so when Paul writes in this letter, one of the themes that is throughout the entire book is why the gospel is, in fact, such good news, why it is we call the message of Jesus Christ the gospel to begin with. Because he knows that these men and women in these churches are going to have opportunity to share this incredible truth, this incredible message that Jesus stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that none of us could live, to die the death that we deserved, and then rose on the third day to prove his power and authority over sin, over death, and so that anyone who calls on his name might be saved. That is our gospel, that eternal life is found by grace through, in, or sorry, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? That is the fundamental gospel that we preach as believers. And so as Paul's writing in this letter, he wants to make sure he's, re, he's emphasizing over and over, right? We're going to see it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, week by week, how Paul is coming back to this gospel news and how amazing and incredible it is, how this good news is the best news that you'll ever hear. But in order to get there, Paul has spent, if you've been here the last month, you know that Paul spends the first three chapters on a lot of just bummer stuff. Like it has been rough because Paul spends so much time setting up the rest of the letter by essentially explaining and laying out the bad news that we are all doomed, that we're doomed. And I don't know how many times you write letters to people that you're like, hey, by the way, we're all doomed. Like, but that's how Paul is opening this letter. And he talks about how we are all destined for destruction, that God's wrath is revealed against all of creation, that none of us can save ourselves through religious work or rites or rituals, that none of us can save ourselves through, through self-righteousness or by following the law, that we're all, in fact, destined for destruction. And he's laying this out in the letter, and it's really just a reflection of what we already know to be true, that we live in a broken world that is dangerous, that is that is scuffed up, that bad things happen all the time. And we need someone or something to step in and save us. We know this. We know this, that, that terrible things are, can always be around the corner. And so we need an out, something else or someone else to step in and save us. We see it in our lives now. We see it in the lives of even young children how, uh, horsing around with their parents. Yeah. 
I got that on video. You did? Yeah. Ja. Immer schön aufpassen. Boah! Was wurde gemacht? Nix, ich hab ihn gefangen. Hallo. <lacht> We all need that hello moment, right? We've all realized at some point, wow, this relationship, this, this promotion, this resource, these things that I've trusted in, these things that I, I think are going to bring me joy and satisfaction and fulfillment, the truth is that these things fail, that, that my life can still feel empty no matter how much of these things I gather, no matter how many of these accomplishments I can, I can make. We realize, wow, you know what? I'm, I'm still lost. I'm still, I'm still unsatisfied. And, and terrible things can always just happen even if it's not my own fault. And so we find ourselves in this existence where in and of ourselves, we don't have a path towards salvation. We, we can't save ourselves from even our own terrible decisions and choices. And that's what Paul's explaining in the first three chapters. But thankfully, this morning, we finally get to round the corner. And even as Paul spent all this time talking about how humanity is doomed for destruction, destined for destruction, what we see this morning is that Paul is going to explain, but here's the good news, that you can, in fact, have eternal life, that you can, in fact, be forgiven of this failure, that you can, in fact, know the God who is holy and perfect and righteous when you are not. You can, in fact, have eternal life. And he's going to explain that you can have it, you can receive it, not because you can do enough, not because you say enough, not because you're, who your parents are or your great-great-grandpappy. He says, you can have eternal life simply by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is what he's going to explain. And this is radical for the people at this time. This is an amazing, triumphant truth that God has made a way, that he has provided that which he required. That through Jesus Christ, he provided the sacrifice necessary to satisfy his wrath against our sin. And so Paul is going to be so clear in this chapter, the back half of chapter 3, for the rest of the letter. About how this is the incredible gift that God has given to us. That even though we all stand condemned, we are also all standing, receiving the incredible compassion and grace of God by faith, or by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what, honestly, Romans, this chapter in particular, this is what started what we refer to as the Protestant Reformation. In the early 1500s, when certain individuals were reading through the book of Romans, Martin Luther in particular, were reading through Romans, they said, wow, this seems abundantly clear that God is actually saving us by grace through faith in Christ. And this begins actually the five solas of the Reformation. We have the five souls, sola, this Latin term meaning only or alone. We, and it's, it's five that guided the Reformation. It was sola gratia, own, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola gloria, God's glory alone. Because what they were professing was that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for God's glory alone. And this is what Paul is going to speak to right here in chapter 3. 
So if you have your Bible, if you want to, if you turn with me to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, or if you want to go there on your phone, we'll also have the scripture on the screen. But what we'll see here is Paul essentially laying out three of those solas, talking about how we are saved through Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through our faith alone. This is what he's laying out for the Roman church in expressing why the gospel is such good news. Read with me in verse 21. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, although it is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. All right, so in verse 20, Paul says that through the law, because of the law, we all stand condemned. That through knowledge of the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so all of our excuses are silenced, that we're all silenced in front of God. We have no excuse, no justification. We can't somehow explain away our mistakes. He says, because of the law, because God has revealed what it looks like to be perfect, and none of us can do that, we stand before him condemned. He says, but now, this incredible dramatic turn in verse 21, now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. All right, so Paul's going to explain more in chapter 4 that, that it's not that we've ever received righteousness from God through obeying the law or through sacrificing animals. That nothing has actually changed in terms of how we receive God's righteousness. It has always been by grace through faith. But what he's saying is that even though how we receive righteousness is once and always through faith in the Lord, what we see here is he's saying that it has been revealed in a new way. That whereas in the Old Testament, people were having to put their trust in God, that he would in some way work out their salvation. They didn't know exactly how, but he promised that he would. Paul's saying now, apart from that law, apart from just these rules and behaviors that point to the perfection of God, it says now we can receive and understand, now we, the righteousness of God has been revealed to us through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, some translations have this, uh, they'll uh, interpret this last part as, the, as through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is a grammatical thing that we're not even going to get into. But it's this whole thing of like, how do you define, how do you interpret this one term? Sometimes it's faith in, some say it's faith in Jesus Christ. Others say, I think it's more compelling of an argument that it's a subjective genitive saying it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Either way. What Paul is saying is that we are receiving the righteousness of God because of Jesus. We understand the righteousness of God because of Jesus. His work is complete. Right? That's what Paul is saying. That it's not about our work. It's not about our behavior. It, says it is about the finished, completed work, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus described his own ministry. When we read in John 19 about his crucifixion, we see in verse uh, 17 that it, it tells us that Jesus was carrying his own cross and he went out to the place called the place of the skull, called in Aramaic Golgotha. And there they crucified him along with two others, one on each side with Jesus in the middle. And Pilate also had a notice written and fastened to the cross which read, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. And thus many of the Jewish residents of Jerusalem read this notice because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. 
very public, very seen. This is going to be important in a little bit. And this notice was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. But then the chief priests of the Jews, they actually said to Pilate, or he said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Right? They hated Jesus because he claimed deity. That's why he was being crucified. The religious leaders hated him. And so the, the religious leader, the chief priest is like, don't, don't give him any credit. Like people are going to get confused like he really is, but he's not. But I love this. This is like my favorite thing from the crucifixion of Christ. Pilate just says, what I've written, I've written. I just love that that made the cut into our Bible. That God wanted to capture this sassy retort from Pilate. It's done, right? We won't have white out for another 1,500 years. So, you know, we can't, we can't go back. That was an aside. So then after this, Jesus, realizing that by this time everything was completed, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I'm thirsty. And so a jar full of sour wine was there, and they put a sponge soaked in sour wine on a branch of hyssop, lifted it to his mouth. And when he had received the sour wine, Jesus said, it is completed. And then he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. It's completed. It's finished. The work is done. Christ's work is enough. His life and death paid the penalty, paid the price that our sin had incurred. And his resurrection proves that his power is greater than those enemies that we could have never defeated. His resurrection is what allows us to now trust in him and receive this righteousness, this, this glory from the Father. But here's the thing, is that even for those of us that have believed in Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, when we walk through daily life, even though we might have begun with this faith in Christ, there is something within us, in our hearts and in our minds, that want, leads us to want to put our trust in other little saviors along the way. Right? There's other there's just moments, there's, there's, there's maybe forks in the road where we're like, gosh, you know, I know that, you know, Jesus is enough, but golly, I really just, if to really feel satisfied or to really feel like God loves me or to really feel fulfilled in my life, I've got to get this relationship. She's got to say yes. He's got to do this. Like, or, or we say, gosh, I, I need to get this job lined up. Oh man, I just, I have to get this thing to have. I need to accomplish this work. I need to get this raise or this promotion, whatever it might be. And we begin to pursue these other things with our, our, our hopes and our dreams, our, our time and our thought and our energy is all given to these other provisional saviors. Because we think, gosh, if only I can have that, then, oh, then I'm set. The reality is that these other saviors, they never satisfy. They will always disappoint people, things, possessions. It doesn't matter. It doesn't satisfy. Eventually, it fails. But there's something in us that says, gosh, but I, if I could just get that, ooh, that's, that's really what I need, to feel good, to feel set. I mean, just this past week, uh, my wife and I, we've got three little kids, and, and every single one of them, they were taking turns getting pink eye over the last like 10 days. It's really sweet. We always encourage them to share. And so we love to see it lived out, um, the fruit of the spirit like that. And so as they are progressively all getting pink eye with a little bit of overlap, uh, we were, I mean, I remember thinking, I was like, gosh, you know, I just, this just needs to be over. Like I remember thoughts and time just being like, God, oh, I just need them to be out of this. Like that's all I need. All I need 
is for my kids to be free from the curse of sin via pink eye. Like, that's what I need. Because it was, you know, they were miserable. If they're miserable, everyone's miserable. Throws off plans. It's just, it's crazy. And so thankfully, about, you know, as of like three or four days ago, they were all free. They were delivered from the curse. But what I discovered is I think that it works kind of like the curse in like the Ring movies where they gave me double pink eye. So even though they are clear, I am now, for the first time in my life, experiencing what sin hath wrought. Like this is miserable. Don't get close. Like that is what happened. Even though I thought, gosh, all I need are these things to be good, to be all set. The reality is that no, like there's always going to be another problem. I could always want more. I could always want something else. Christ is saying, Scripture tells us repeatedly, you need to find your identity in Christ alone. You need to trust in Christ alone to really, truly satisfy the longings of your soul. Now, should we work hard and pursue things and be good stewards? Absolutely. But those things can never be the highest and greatest ultimate purpose of our life. So as followers of Jesus, we need to be a people who are rejecting the temptation to place anything else above our one true Lord and Savior. We need to reject those other saviors. We need to remember that Christ is enough. No matter what my highest highs are or my lowest lows, I can remember even when my body fails me, even when people fail me, even when school or work or whatever fails me, I can remember that Christ is enough. He is enough. And so we have this opportunity to have peace and comfort, a peace that surpasses all understanding because Christ's work is enough, because he alone has secured for us eternal life, right? By grace alone, through our faith alone, in his work alone. Paul explains that at the beginning, of, or in, sorry, in verses 21 and 22, but then he makes a turn in verse 23 and begins to speak about the grace of God, or the end of verse 22. He says this, There's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Paul says, remember, right? He had just been the first three chapters talking about the wrath of God, that all are condemned, that all are doomed. He says, every single one of us have fallen short. And what's so significant is the term here that he's using for fall short it's not a past tense. It's a present tense. You could also translate it as the, all have sinned and are continually or still falling short. Because that's true of all of us. Even those of us who have trust in Jesus Christ, we know there's still a part of us. There's a sinful nature that longs to go against the will of God. When he says, go left, I want to go right. When he tells me that this is what's best, I want to believe that, gosh, maybe I actually know what's best. And Paul says, this is the state of humanity, continually falling short of the perfection, the glory of God. He says, but they are justified freely by his grace. Justified being a legal term that Paul uses repeatedly. It's very significant. It's very important. Justified does not mean to transform someone into what is right or to transform something into what is right. It's not making something different. What it is is it's a declaration about said thing or person. So when Paul says that we are justified 
freely by his grace. He's not saying that we're all transformed. That's why I still have this sinful nature. One day, glorification awaits and I will be fully, perfectly transformed into the image of my Lord and Savior in his presence forever, the new heaven and the new earth. That is what I look forward to. But here and now, I still struggle. I still sin. I still fail. Why? Because I haven't been fully transformed yet. But in this time, God has justified me. He has declared me righteous by his grace through the true perfection of Jesus Christ. This is why God publicly, verse 25, he publicly displayed Jesus at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. Paul is alluding to this practice in the Jewish nation. A lot of the people that he's writing to were Jews by birth, but followers of Christ by decision, by conviction. And so he says, you may know you may remember that you have this day of atonement. This is a significant day in the life of the Jewish nation, the day of atonement, when the high priest of Israel would go to the Holy of Holies. He'd go into the temple, into the the most inner room, and it was only there for one person on one day. It was only for the high priest to go into one day a year. In that room, there's nothing except the Ark of the Covenant, It was this symbolic throne for the Lord with these angels on top of it and it's gold and it's very special. And it's a box. And inside of this box, there's three items. There's the rod of Aaron, brother of Moses, who led Israel out of Egypt. There is a a portion of manna, the miraculous bread type food that God provided for Israel over decades in the desert. And there are stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. These are all inside the Ark of the Covenant, closed up inside the Holy of Holies that the high priest would go into once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he would perform a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, and he would pour the blood of an animal on the lid of that box. And that lid was called the mercy seat. And it was called the mercy seat because this is symbolically where the Lord would reside to judge and care for and oversee his nation. And it was the mercy seat because what Israel realized is they needed the mercy of God. What I mean by this is that when God looked inside that box and he saw those three things, it wasn't a testament to how great God is. I mean, God is great. And he provided leadership for them. He provided sustenance, food for them. He provided uh, commandments for them to obey. But the author of Hebrews talks about how when the Lord looks into this box and he sees these three items, it's not just a sign of his glory, it's a sign of Israel's failure. Because the reality is that in the life of the Jewish nation, they rejected God's authority through Moses and Aaron. They rebelled and they grumbled. They fought against the leaders that God put in place. They rejected God's provision. They grumbled about manna. They said, we want more to eat. We want to just go back to Egypt because at least there we got to eat what we wanted. They rejected God's commandments. Literally, when Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai with the law for the first time, he discovers that the nation of Israel had created a golden idol that they began to worship. Like, as he's coming, he's like, oh my gosh, you guys, look at it. He's like, oh, guys. Like, he was so sad. And he broke the tablets. It was a mess. So in this box, when God looks down at his throne, what he sees is failure after failure after failure. That's why they needed the Day of Atonement. 
That's why they needed the blood of an animal to be spilled and spread on the top of this seat. Because then when God looked down, he didn't see their failure. He saw the right sacrifice. He saw the correct payment for sin brings or requires death. And so the other thing that would happen on the Day of Atonement is not only would one animal be slaughtered and its blood poured on top of the seat, but there would be a pair, there would be another animal, a goat, that the high priest would lay his hands on and he would, in, you know, symbolically put the sins of Israel into that, into that uh, young goat and he would send it off into the wilderness. It was marked. It was literally a scapegoat. That's where we get that. And the scapegoat would go off into the wilderness and no one was supposed to touch it or kill it or anything like that because it was a symbol of how God was essentially taking the sins of Israel and tossing them far away. And in fact, what God was doing, right, is when this day would come, he literally would say this term atonement means that it is covered over. So when God is passing over these sins, when Paul explains in verse 26 that this was to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness, when Paul talks about God now being righteous in the present time, about being just and justifier, what he's explaining is that in the past, in God's forbearance, he had looked over those sins. He was delaying. It's not that he dismissed his wrath. It's not that those sins were actually fully forgiven. Because as the author of Hebrews and what Paul's even going to say in chapter 4 is that the blood of those animals, that's not enough. It's never enough. It doesn't count. It doesn't forgive sin. Instead, what God was doing was he was allowing his people by faith to essentially defer his wrath, to delay his wrath, not to dissolve it, not to dismiss it. And it was being stored up until Jesus Christ came to the cross, until Jesus Christ himself became that mercy seat. And when his blood was spilled, when his sacrifice was made, that is where the Lord once and for all truly forgave. That's where the Lord's wrath was fully poured out and fully satisfied on the cross. And so today, even today, at sunset, it's the beginning of Yom Kippur, which is, for the Jewish people, the Day of Atonement. From sunset this evening to sunset tomorrow, it's the Day of Atonement, where they still believe that they are awaiting the day that while they can delay God's judgment through personal sacrifice, they're still waiting for that moment to come where God can truly, actually forgive. They're waiting for that day, that day that we understand is satisfied in Jesus Christ. That his grace is complete. That his righteousness is manifested. That he, in fact, fulfilled the law. That he, in fact, provided that which he required. Through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, God's grace is all-encompassing. God's grace is sufficient. It's enough. It's comprehensive. Right? God is loving. That is, his per that is part of his personal nature. And so many of the attributes of God, scholars refer to some attributes, there are personal or attributes and there are relational 
attributes. Personally, he is loving. Relationally, the way that love reflects on us or interacts with us, engages with us, is through grace and mercy. Grace meaning you receive that which you don't deserve. Mercy meaning you don't receive that which you do deserve. It's an important distinction, and both are true for the believer. But it's important to understand the distinction. Mercy is amazing, right? Jesus is the mercy seat where God withholds, or he withholds his wrath, the wrath that we deserve. He poured it out on Christ instead. And that's important. It's important for us to understand mercy. I remember when I was in seventh grade, I started at a brand new school. I knew one kid in the whole school. And my first day of classes, everything was new. It was really wild. I didn't know anybody. Uh, but I got to my last class of the day, and it was English. And I was excited for that because I liked reading and writing. I would soon discover that now we're diagramming sentences, and English is the worst. So, you know, but I didn't know yet. I was still naive and young and hopeful. And so as I went in this English class, I was a little pumped, but I got super pumped. Because at the beginning of this class, when the bell rang, boom, our teacher got a stool and set it up in the front of the classroom, just silent. Everyone's just watching her silently. She gets the stool, sets it up, and she climbs on top of it, which is wild, right? Because she's, she's like a grown adult woman. And when you're 12, and she's got like kids and stuff, and you know, we're 12, so I assume she's like 87 years old. Like there's like no, it's, you're either 13 or 87, right? Like there's no distinction. So she, this 80. This 97-year-old woman stands on top of this stool. She spreads her arms out, and no joke, she says, first thing in the class, she goes, welcome to English class. And we were like, dude, let's go. What is happening? And Mrs. Woods was amazing. She was a great teacher. She was super fun, super engaging. In fact, we had so much fun in that class that I would just kind of get caught up, and I would forget that it was still a class with rules and regulations. And so I would get in trouble for speaking out of turn once, twice, three times. And as I was getting in trouble, I got a you know, verbal warning once, and then I got another verbal warning, and then I got another verbal warning, and then I started getting written warnings. So I got one written warning, I got another written warning, until one day, a few weeks, you know, or a few months into school, I was speaking out of turn, having a blast, and Mrs. Woods goes, Jacob, now's not the time to speak. She's like, I'm gonna have to write you down. I'm gonna have to give you a written warning. I was like, okay. But she looks down at her book, and she realizes... That's my third written warning. So she calls me up. She says, Jacob, I need you to come up here. And I'm terrified, right? I don't normally get in trouble, or I didn't at that time. And so we won't go into it. But I, I approach her lectern. I'm terrified. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, and I'm doing the math in my head. I'm like, was that like six or seven? I'm like, where am I at? And I get up there, and she's like, Jacob. She's looking at her book. She says, Jacob, this is your third written warning. And what that means is that I need to send you to the principal's office. You're going to get a slip and you're going to be going to detention. And I'd never been to detention. Like, I wasn't ready for that. Like, I didn't want face tattoos. Like, I didn't know. <laughs> I knew what happened to kids like me in detention. Like, I, that wasn't my life. And so I'm getting upset. I'm probably tearing up. And I'm just ashamed. I'm looking away from him like, oh, no, like, what am I going to do? I'm like, you know, writing, dear mom, don't forget about me. You know, like, and in that moment, Mrs. Wood, she, she looks at me. She goes, Jacob? She goes, Jacob, look at me. Look at me. And I remember, so to say, I'm like, I'm looking away. I'm ashamed. I look up at her. We lock eyes. She goes, Jacob? She goes, do you know what mercy is? 
And I'm like, I get it's English class, but like vocab quiz doesn't seem appropriate in this moment. But I'm like, I don't know. It's like you get a thing that you don't, shouldn't get. Or, and she's like, no, Jacob. Mercy is when you do not receive that which you deserve. She says, Jacob, today I will show you mercy. I will not write you down. But if this happens again, we will have a different conversation. I'm like, okay, thank you. you know? And at that moment, the bell rings. Boom, and we're like, it's over. And everyone's getting ready to go. And so I'm just like stunned. I'm thankful that I have a, a whole new life ahead of me. Um, you know, and I get my backpack and I head out. But even as I'm heading out the door, I kind of feel this presence. I'm like, gosh, it seems like something's following out the door. Sure enough, I get about five steps down the super packed hallway. Everyone's going home. I get five steps down the hallway and I hear, Jacob! And I look back and it's Mrs. Woods. She's hanging outside of her doorway with her hand on the door, on the whatever, the thing, the door. And she's like, Jacob! And, and at this point, even the non-Jacobs freeze and look. Like everyone's like, what is happening? She looks at me again from a distance and she points this time. She says, Jacob, go and sin no more. <laughs> so I didn't. Like, that was it. That was it. Seventh grade. Uh, staying clean. But that was, that was a moment when I experienced mercy. I was taught what it was. And I'll tell you, I will never forget. I will never forget. And the truth is that every single one of us, we have been shown incredible mercy from the Lord. Even if we haven't experienced that from people in our lives. And I, I hope, man, I, I hope that you've gotten the chance to experience mercy, to extend mercy to one another from family members or from friends. It's a beautiful thing. But God has shown us incredible mercy. He's shown us the greatest mercy of all through Jesus Christ. And it's not just that he's shown us mercy. It would be one thing for God to just wipe our slate clean and be like, okay, I'll forgive your debt. Now just go do your thing. That's not what he does. God shows us mercy in that he forgives us of our sin, but he then gives us grace. He credits to us righteousness. This is Paul's incredible statement. That it's not just that God's like, you're clean, Go away. God says, you're clean and I love you and I want to use you to bring my kingdom to this earth. I want to use you and pour into you. I want to transform you and I want to use your life for greater eternal purposes. God has given us grace on top of the mercy that we have received. That is the good news of our gospel. And so when Paul tells us that the faithfulness of Christ brings to us not just mercy, that the mercy seat, but brings to us grace, that should rock our world. But there's a part of us that wants to think, gosh, what if, what if I, it's not quite enough? Right? What if I've done too much? What if, I, what if I've you know, strayed too far? But those fears and those hesitations, I'm telling you, these are lies that come from the enemy. These are lies that we're tempted to believe that are not true. We can remember 
that God's grace is enough. Why? Because God has clearly told us that eternal life is offered to all people everywhere. People standing guilty, people standing condemned, people standing silenced by the perfection displayed in the law. This mercy, this grace, this salvation has come by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. This is where Paul ends the passage. This is where he ends chapter 3, starting in verse 27. He says, where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what principle? Of works? No. By the principle of faith. So, so do we have reason to boast? Do we have reason to think of ourselves more highly than others? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He says, this is God's work. This is God's glory. We boast in Christ alone. And we consider, verse 28, that a person is declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. Is declared righteous, right? Justified. By faith, apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. For since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. Instead, we uphold the law. He says that the law is not something to be done away with. It's not something to look down upon. It wasn't a mistake. Instead, he says the law has been fulfilled in Christ. That's Jesus' own words. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And so in our faith, through our faith in Christ, we still appreciate the law. Why? Because God used the law in his perfect plan to point us towards Christ. Because Jesus fulfilled that law. He didn't find a loophole. He didn't make an exception. He didn't carve out this clause that's like, oh, turns out this. No, he fulfilled that law. God was, that's why God is still just and can still be the justifier. Because he obeyed his own law. He played by his own rule book. So we uphold the law. We recognize that it is valuable, that it's important. But we also remember that our salvation has come by faith alone. To close, this is a summary from an author named N.T. Wright, pastor and author. He says that the faith because of which one is declared righteous consists simply of the helpless trust in what the one God has done in Jesus. He says, we're declared righteous, we're justified by faith alone. Everything that comes later, the hard moral work of producing the fruit of the Spirit, the putting to death of the deeds of the body and so forth, right? He says these these life transformation, this process of what we call sanctification. He says, those things are good, those things are important, but all that has a very different character. It's a completely different beast from this initial, utterly astonished, utterly humble, Spirit-inspired, gospel-driven confession that the crucified and risen Jesus is Lord. Yes, does God want to transform our life? Yes, does God, does God want us to live a life that is holy and set apart, that is useful? He wants us to put our faith into practice? Absolutely. But are we saved by our works? Do we boast in our works? Are we justified by our works? Did we do enough, earn enough, say enough, accomplish enough? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We are adopted into the family of God, not by works, but by faith. Faith in the one who is faithful. Faith in the one who is gracious. 
faith in the one who is merciful, faith in the one who is perfect, who secured for us this eternal life. So even though there might be a part of us that, that doubts, that wants to add to this message of salvation, that we're like, gosh, but I think I need to do a little bit more, or do this, or, you know, God's not really going to accept me if I've got this background or this hang-up. Or... Again, does God want us to live holy life set apart for his purpose? Definitely. Does God want you to flee temptation? Does God desire that you would, you would be able to protect yourself against sin? Yes. Yes. But is that required to be considered a child of God? Never. We work out our salvation from acceptance, not for acceptance. And so we, as followers of Christ, should be a people who reject those prideful notions. That's really what it is. Those prideful notions that we could ever do enough, say enough, be enough. We reject that. And we remember that faith is enough. And so, as we close this morning, we're going to sing about the sufficiency of Christ and how he has earned that which we could never accomplish. But before we sing about the state of who we are in the eyes of God, we have a chance, we have an opportunity, something that we're doing here at Southwood on a semi-consistent basis. We have a chance, an opportunity to pray with one another. Right? We, we prayed uh, for the requests that have come in over the last month that were up on the screen, some of the requests that have come in. We prayed over those earlier in the service. And I love that. But we now have an opportunity to not just look up at the screen. We have an opportunity to look to our left and right and actually pray with one another. Trusting, knowing that God has put us here with these people for a purpose. Knowing that God wants to hear our prayers because God faithfully answers our prayers. And so before we sing our final song, I'm, when I say go here in a second, you're just going to find a few people around you. It could be one, two, three people. It could be people you already know that you came with. It could be someone that you're going to introduce yourself to. That's great too. But you're going to find a few people around you, and you're just going to briefly, briefly share, I would encourage you, one of two prompts. Either share where you need the Lord to increase your faith. Is it in his grace? Is it faith in the completed work of Christ? Is it faith that the Lord is, can still move through you or around you, can bring healing or whatever it might be? Whenever the disciples of Jesus were intimidated or, or felt this, this high calling, they would tell Jesus, we need you to increase our faith. That's a prayer we still need to pray. So you can share, you can be as specific or as general as you want, but you can either share with your partner, say, this is why I need the Lord to increase my faith, or I would say you can share who is it that you want to see place their faith in Jesus Christ. Who is it that you know that you long to see in heaven one day? Not because they'll do enough or say enough or earn enough, but because they will trust that Christ is enough. And again, we don't need to go into details. You can use a letter or initials. But I would just encourage you, find a few people around you. Share briefly. Again, general or specific, all I ask is that is brief. Briefly share, and then let's pray. Let's pray together, trusting that God hears us, that he will answer us. I'm going to give you a few minutes to do this, and I'll close this in a, in a bit. Ready, set, 